U.S. Postal Service advertises with the well-recognized slogan, We Deliver For You. It might be to the wrong address or a few days late once in a while, but it's a, it's a great slogan. It's an effective ad because we all value someone who can deliver for us. The slogan, it's uh, interesting. It's really even made its way into uh, our speech as a figure speech. Uh, you might hear from time to time somebody say, He can really deliver the mail. She can really deliver the mail. It's a way of saying that a person can be trusted to accomplish a certain task, to get a job done right. You can count on them. They deliver. Uh, Carl Malone, star forward for the Utah Jazz and the NBA, uh, has been called, nicknamed the mailman, because he delivers for his team. The team can count on him to put the ball in the basket, sometimes with great vigor. He gets the job done. He can be trusted on the basketball court. And God knows that we need more people who can deliver. People who can be given an assignment and follow through with excellence. I trust that's your desire as a per to be a person who delivers. Whether it's at school or maybe it's a chore that you have at home or your job or relationship, your ministry in the church, whatever it is, whatever situation... I trust that you strive by faith to prove dependable and effective in the tasks that are assigned to you. But let's admit it. Just like the Postal Service, there's times we just don't deliver. There's sometimes, humanly speaking, where it's not even possible for us to deliver. The story is told of a young colonist during the days of the Revolutionary War. He was thrilled one day to be asked by a businessman in his small town to help deliver packages on an as-needed basis. The boy skipped home singing and bragging to his older sister about this new opportunity, and the older and bigger sister fumed with jealousy. The next day, the businessman summoned the young lad and said, I want you to take this single envelope to the inn. It's about a mile away. He gave the young boy these instructions. Never, ever, ever open a letter and never let anybody see you delivering a letter. As long as you do that, we'll be fine and you'll have a job. The letter was to be delivered to the inn about a mile away and he was to give it to a stranger there in the tavern. The description was given and the boy was sent away. He set off on his mission with pride and joy filling his heart wondering who this stranger was and why he needed to deliver this letter and why it was all so secretive. He had no idea. But as he was going along his way, he was met on the road by his older sister. His bratty older sister and his bigger older sister. And she said, what's that in your hand? Nothing, get out of my way. What? No, I see a letter in your hand. Is that a letter to your girlfriend? That's a letter to your girlfriend. And she began to wrestle with him down on the dirt for the letter. And she ripped it out of his hand and she tore it open. She pulled out the letter, threw it down on the ground and walked away laughing. The humiliated boy picked up the letter out of the dirt and he wiped it off. There were tears stinging his eyes, tears of anger and frustration at his sister. To his greatest disappointment, he read... Dear Captain, this letter is sent as a test to determine the trustworthiness of our messenger. The boy had been chosen to curry secretive messages for the colonial army 
but he had failed to deliver. He was deeply disappointed. And I think we all know to some degree how that boy felt, don't we? In our human weakness, there are times, as hard as we might try, that we fail to deliver. As a husband, as a mom, as a dad, as a wife, as a son or daughter, as an employee, as a student, as a friend, as a servant of Jesus Christ. As human beings, at times we all fail to deliver. But not our God. Our God never fails to deliver the mail. Never. No matter the circumstances, when He makes a decision, He affects it. When He makes a promise, He fulfills it. When He assigns Himself a task, He brings that task to completion every single time. This truth runs throughout Scripture, and it is a truth which is prominently demonstrated in the text before us this morning. Our God delivers. In chapter 6 of Genesis, we saw that God chose Noah out of a fallen world to survive the destruction of the worldwide flood. In chapter 7, Noah enters the ark with his family and pairs of every kind of animal. Notice chapter 7 and verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on, the day, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. And rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. In verse 18 of chapter 7, the waters rose and increased greatly on the earth. The ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 20 feet. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished, birds and livestock and wild animals and all the creatures that swarm over the earth and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Everything living on the earth on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. We would understand verse 24 to mean that there were 40 days of constant torrential rains and volcanic upheavals as it is described to us there in verse 11 of chapter 7. That had to be one wild ride for Noah and company. They had never seen rain before. They're in this big box, pitching and swaying in the violent stormwaters coming down 40 days and 40 nights, and they knew God's Word. But undoubtedly, there were many anxious prayers that He would, in fact, deliver and that the rains would stop in 40 days. And then the rains did stop. Those in the ark waited and wondered. If they ever dared to look outside, all that they could see, as far as the eye could see, in every direction was water. What looked like a massive building on earth, this great ark, was now nothing but a tiny splinter bobbing on the surface of a shoreless ocean. And Noah waits. For a total of 150 days, flood conditions prevailed on the earth. For 110 days after the rain stopped, the ark just floated. It's a long time. In one simple phrase, we then read in verse 1 of chapter 8, such an important phrase, but God remembered Noah. 
God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. God remembered a simple phrase that is the controlling point of the entire chapter. God remembered Noah. Now there's different kinds of remembrance. Some of you will appreciate this illustration very much. Uh, it seems like the last few years of our life have been dominated by potty training. That's just the way life is at the Miller home right now. Our boys think it's big stuff if you turn on the fan and shut the door and leave them. They just think that's, that's big. And so we, we do that and wait for the call for help. Well, on a number of occasions it's happened that I have done that and gotten busy with something else and remembered there's a kid up there. And it's, oh no! <laughs> and you can just imagine what's on the other side of that closed door. The kid's been up there for a long time. You remember him and you go running. That's not the kind of remembrance we have here. God's not, oh no, I forgot about no, it's been 110 days of sitting there floating. I can't, I can't believe it. I wonder what's going on in that ark. That's not how God remembers because he is what? He's omniscient. He never learned anything. He never forgot anything. He knows everything all the time. A different illustration that might get us a little closer is when we remember someone at their birthday. We send them a birthday card. We say that we remember them on their birthday. That doesn't mean that we forgot they were born. Oh yeah, I remember you were born and so I'm sending you a letter. It's just to say, we are remembering you in an appropriate way at an appropriate time. That is the kind of remembering that God does. When God remembers someone, it means that he moves to act in their behalf in a unique way which is fitting to the unique need and so as the narrative comes out, comes to play out, we see God in his many faceted remembrance of Noah. He meets him in his need. He doesn't forget him. He doesn't leave him in the lurch. He doesn't leave him bobbing on the waters, but remembers him in an appropriate way. Noah was righteous. God chose Noah. And true to his promise, God remembers Noah floating out there in the waters. Because he remembered Noah, God the second part of verse 1, sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. Now if we read this in the Hebrew, it would bring to mind something in the creative account because the word wind is the Hebrew word ruach. And that word is used, it translated spirit in chapter 1 and verse 2. You might want to look over there. In chapter 1 and verse 2, you remember in chapter 1, we have the creation of matter Time, space, in the beginning God creates heaven and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep. We have this, the material world is there, but it's in a chaotic state. But then we read that warm, comforting statement. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. That word spirit, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters is ruach. The same word used to translate the word wind in chapter 8 and verse 1. And so we have a literary connection back to the creative account. God is watching over the world that he has brought into being in Genesis 1, and now he's watching over the world that has been destroyed in Genesis 8. Now, I, I, I hasten to say that I think in Genesis 8, it is a literal meaning to the word spirit or wind. It's translated either way. And I think it is a literal win, but yet again, it does draw back to us that the attention that God is taking care of his world. Under the protection of the watery canopy, the pre-flood world did not experience much wind. 
But now that that canopy has opened up, has fallen to earth and rain, there's been vast, there are now vast temperature differentials between the poles and the equator, and that causes great movements of air and the system of atmospheric circulation, which we now know is in place. And as these initial winds blow across the face of the shoreless ocean, they're probably quite violent, generating tremendous waves and sea currents which aid in evaporation. And so the wind is blowing and the evaporation is taking place so that the waters we read here recede. They recede. The flood was over because, as verse 2 says, now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed and the rain had stopped falling from the, from the sky. That draws us back to what? That draws us back to chapter 7 and verse 11, the two sources of the floodwaters. Remember the subterranean system of reservoirs and conduits that under the pressure of the internal heat of the earth would come to the surface, uh, supplying the rivers on the pre-flood world where there was no rain. Well, those had burst open and water had come up. And the canopy that encircled the earth, this invisible canopy of water, had come down for 40 days in the form of rain. And now both of these sources are restrained by the hand of God. In verse 3 we read, the water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Very carefully crafted historical account with dates included. The water is receding steadily. I, I always wondered as a boy reading that, how can wind make water go down fast so that it's receding? It, it's not just wind, I don't think, that's half taking place here. But as the system of subterranean reservoirs, these, these reservoirs under the earth, as they collapsed and as water was forced up, uh, under the weight of the waters that then came down and rushed into these basins, uh, we had the dry, what was dry land now becoming the bottom of the seas. And as these basins are created, this water rushing to fill in the, the, the hole, uh, it brings along large quantities of sediment. This flow then pushes on the sides of the basins, forcing earth upward, and land masses begin to appear. Large interior lakes and massive rivers carve out caverns and lay down sedimentary deposits which are rapidly buried by shifting land masses and mudslides. Notice, if you will, on this point, we'll just stay here, but go back to, uh, put your finger here, go back to Psalm 104. Psalm 104 pictures this process pretty specifically. It's really amazing. Uh, how the rest of the Old Testament backs up the flood account and these ideas that have just been shared. Uh, Psalm 104 and verse 5. It says, He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment and water stood above the mountains. But at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. What, that has to be talking about the flood. It's not creation. It's not thunder here before uh, rain. And in the creative account, God is creating. He's bringing order to what is there. But here he is rebuking the waters, not creating them. But he's rebuking the waters, and they fled. Verse 8, look at this very carefully. It's just intriguing. Verse 8, they flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. 
You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. So as this process is taking place, as the waters are running down off the earth, there is land that is being pushed up. There are basins that are being formed and water is running into it along with this heavy wind that is causing evaporation. The earth is beginning to dry and the ark comes to settle on Mount Ararat. Verse 4, on the 17th day of the seventh month, settling on Mount Ararat. Um, Mountains here is plural, so it's a very vague location. These mountains are in Armenia or eastern Turkey. It's interesting that uh, one scientist notes that this mountain range abounds in what is known as pillow lava, a dense lava rock formed under great depths of water. These mountains also include cert, uh, certain sedimentary formations containing marine fossils. So you've got these marine fossils on top of these high mountains that evidence lava which is going, coming, of course, from under the earth. So it all fits together very well. Verse 5, we read on, The waters continued to recede until the tenth month, and on the first day of the tenth month, the tops of the mountains became visible. The floodwaters continued to recede for two and a half more months, when from Noah's perspective, I believe, is the point of verse 5, mountaintops begin to appear. I don't think this is probably God's account that mountaintops appear and Noah can't see anything, but possibly at least Noah's looking out and he's seeing there's other mountaintops that are uh, evidencing themselves. Verse 6 then, after 40 days Noah opened the window he had made in the ark. So he sees some mountaintops and he then waits for 40 days. He opens a window. We're not sure where that window is exactly, but probably just something of a hatch something of a small window. It's not the large window described in chapter 6 and verse 16. Just a small hatch that Noah had made to serve the purposes here quite well. Verse 7, he sent out a raven and it kept flying back and forth over the water until the water had dried up from the earth. So land is showing, but it's wet, muddy land. Uh, This doesn't bother, of course, a raven, which is a carrion eater that is feeding off of dead and rotting flesh, and apparently there's much there to find, and he's able to keep himself fed and sees no reason to come back to the ark, this unclean bird. But verse 8 then, then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. A dove, meaning of receded is what here? We know that, and he knows, Noah knows, that some there's been recession of the water. He sees mountaintops. But the word receded can have a wide range of meaning, and sometimes it is translated of little account, and I think that's the point here. In other words, is the ground habitable? He sends out a raven, which doesn't mean a whole lot, but the raven's finding food, but now he sends out a dove to determine if the ground is habitable. One of the reasons for sending the dove is that they were commonly trained in the ancient world to aid with navigation. But a second reason is that doves are valley birds. So if this dove can find a place to live in a valley, then he knows there's enough room for him and the animals on the ark, or at least the indication is there. Remember, Noah's dealing here with a lot of animals. You don't just have a 10 by 10 spot of land and then all get out. There's many, many animals. We've estimated maybe in the range of 36,000 different kinds of animals in pairs with the clean ones being 14 Uh, seven pairs of clean ones. So there's a lot of animals. He's got to wait for a lot of room. 
uh, to be out there. And I don't know if he, if he probably slipped out on his own. The animals would probably mutiny or something. They've been in here for a year. So he's just staying put. He's waiting on God. But is there, is the recession of the water such that land is now habitable? Verse nine, but to Noah's great disappointment, the dove could find no place to set its feet because there was water over all the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and he took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. Just as God had put him in the ark, he gives safety to this dove. Again, it doesn't mean there's no land on earth because the text has already made that clear, but it does mean that there's no place for this bird to find habitation. Verse 10 then, he waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. This Hebrew word, is, it's, all, it makes, just, it's humorous. It's a word that's sometimes used of dancing or of whirling or of great agitation. In other words, Noah's waiting patiently. He's very anxious to see if this bird will finally find a place to, to live so that he can be delivered from this ark. Verse 11, when the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew. Then Noah knew. <laughs> then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. That was exciting for Noah, I'm sure. Waiting anxiously in there, and he, the dove, the valley bird, now finds a place to live. Verse 13, by the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. Apparently he couldn't see enough to see what he now saw with removing the covering, probably the, the roof or something like that that was on the top probably taking quite a bit of time, but he, he gets it off. He can see now clearly that there is place uh, to live. I don't know that verses 13 and 14 necessarily mean that the earth looked just like it does now, that it was that dry. I, it might, I, I don't know, but I, I think the point is that it was able to sustain life. And I say that because there, are, there is evidence of interior lakes and, and, and rivers that evidence that there was a lot more water there at one time. Now that could be due to the ice age and to the melting of the ice caps, we don't know. Uh, but it's very possible here that the simple point is that earth was fine uh, to inhabit. Verse 15, then God said to Noah. Now Noah's been doing everything humanly conceivable to determine whether or not he should leave the ark. Everything conceivable. He's sending out birds. He's waiting anxiously. I'm sure he's praying. But now God speaks and he settles the whole thing. He makes it very clear to Noah what he's to do. That's a real picture of salvation. God is the one who saves. God's word saves. God's the one who delivers. He's the one who lays out the plan. But we work to his glory to do as we know with the wisdom he's given us. Verse 16, God says, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. That had to be a great word to Noah. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds and the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number upon it. 
We talked in our adult class this morning about the obvious connection here with the creative account. The animals are listed carefully as they were in the creation account. There is the command, the blessing to multiply, to be fruitful, to increase in number as we have in the creation account. And so what is very clear here is that we're starting all over. It's a new start for mankind. It's interesting to note that the mountains of Ararat are at the geographic center of the earth. And if you bring into account the idea that now with the breakup of the canopy, the polar caps are freezing, they're turning to ice, and as they, uh, now there's, been, they, there's been melting since this time, but when they were at their height, these polar caps, we believe that the oceans would have, uh, uh, the ocean level would have been lower, allowing for land bridges to be connected to the continent. So this is all a bit of conjecture. But it's very possible, and it's interesting to note, if you make all those land bridges, all those connections, and you find the center of it all, it's the mountains of Ararat. And so as the animals leave, they now have the world before them to fill it as God has commanded here, as God has blessed them here. And so rapid changes probably take place. Latent within the genetic systems of these animals, uh, these changes take place as animals adapt to their newfound habitats. Some didn't make it to certain continents. There's a difference now that wasn't true of the original earth. All animals could live anywhere. Again, as I mentioned last week, that's why we find woolly mammoths in the the poles, in the North Pole, encased in ice with green grass in their stomachs because that's the original world that was destroyed. This is a different world. Not all animals make it. Not all animals adapt. Some of the challenges of survival in the new world were too stiff for some. Dinosaurs were on the ark. There's no problem with that. You take little dinosaurs. You remember that most dinosaurs were little, were small, most of them the size of a dog or sheep, somewhere in that range. And you take little babies, you can get them there, you can transport them, but they didn't make it. They were on earth, they multiplied for some time, humans living with the dinosaurs, but they didn't make it. They became extinct. But at this point... Man and animals once again inhabit dry land. And once again, they are blessed by God to multiply and fill the earth. It's a new beginning. And we go back to verse 1, we put it together, God has delivered. He has promised that He would take care of Noah, that He would spare Noah, and He's done it. The flood was passed. Everything living on earth was destroyed. Noah went through a horrific ordeal in the ark. Too hard for us to imagine what it might be to be locked up with those animals in one place and floodwaters for a year. But God remembered Noah. And so in verse 18, Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on the earth came out of the ark, one kind after another. It was a jailbreak. Hold up in that ark for an entire year, Noah and his shipmates finally planted their feet on dry land and I suppose probably learned to walk again on it. But it had to be an exciting day. But what a different, different world. The warm, uniform, rainless, moist, tropical world that Noah left when he embarked on this journey was gone. It was a different world. It was a place where the new experiences of strong winds and stark temperature changes faced him immediately. It was a world of rain clouds, of rugged topography, of snow and rain and harmful radiation. 
It's a world of volcanoes and seismic activity. It was a very, very different world. Sin had scarred the face of the earth. It had changed the world from being a warm place to being a dangerous and rugged place. Warm at places, but cold at other places. But the point is, what we need to remember here as we move from Genesis chapter 8 through the rest of the Bible is that God delivered Noah. It was a different world, but Noah was now on that earth. And what is the first thing you do when you're delivered? What do you do when you break out of an ark on which you've been trapped for a year, being saved by God? What do you do when you're delivered? What's the proper response? Verse 20, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. I want to learn from Noah. Because Noah was a man, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, that made the ultimate cut. On this whole world, he was the righteous man that wasn't judged. He was a man who thought worshipfully. When he thought of God's deliverance, his first concept was to worship. This is an incredible act. You've been cooped up for a year in an ark. You don't have a limitless supply of clean animals, but he lays out many of them. The text says all of every kind of clean animal. He lays them out on this altar and kills them. He burns them, it says here, with a, a whole burnt offering. Burnt offerings were offerings that were total sacrifices. Some offerings you could keep part of the meat and eat yourself and burn the rest of it to God. But the burnt offering, you consume the whole thing. He gave it all to God. Burnt offerings were petition, uh, petitionary sacrifices. That is, they involved something of a request on the part of the worshiper. They were joyful sacrifices, evidencing a thankful heart to God. And they were expiatory sacrifices. That means they were coming to God asking for the forgiveness of sin. So this righteous man comes with this gift and says, God, forgive me. I'm a sinner. You have seen me as righteous. You have rescued me, but I do not come in my own merit. I lay down these sacrifices saying, Dear God, may your goodness cover for me. It was an offering that was pleading in petition for God's continual blessing in life. And it was a joyful sacrifice, rejoicing in the deliverance of God. And the Lord, verse 21, smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As Noah petitions God for mercy, the offering he sacrificed to the Lord pleased God. It moved him to will in his heart never again to destroy the world by flood. Ask this question of yourself. It's just worth consideration, I think. What mercies might God purpose in his heart toward our world in response to our worship? What mercies might God purpose in his heart toward our world in response to the worship of righteous people? That's what happens here. Because, as the text says in verse 21, never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil. The King James translates that for, 
which indicates that God will not destroy the world because man is evil. That's obviously not the point. A better translation here is even though every inclination of the thoughts of his heart is evil from childhood. Do you see what God is saying? It goes back to chapter 6 and verse 5. God saw the wicked world. He saw that every thought was evil in the sense that it was all selfish, that it was all against God. He saw that. He destroys the world. And what is he saying here? It's no different. Now that I've destroyed mankind, it's no different. Yes, Noah is seen as a righteous man. The righteousness of God is credited to Noah. He is seeking to live for God, but God knows man is corrupt to the core. We are by nature sinful. Given our own way and the right circumstances, we are capable of every sin. And God knows it. But in response to Noah's worship, God says, yet I will never again destroy this earth. Think about that phrase with me. What does it mean? It means, as God puts it noetic, uh, poetically, Boy, I'm mixing up letters here, aren't I, today? <laughs> Noetically. Uh, poetically. Verse 22. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. Mercy. That's grace. Not even though... The inclinations of our heart, the purposes of our soul are against God, are evil and wicked. In mercy, God cares for us and protects us and decides in his own mind. He's not talking to Noah. He purposes in his own heart, I'll never destroy the earth like that again. The earth will rotate on its tilted axis. Axis, day and night, summer and winter, spring planting and fall harvest, hot and cold temperatures will characterize life on planet Earth. The sun will draw up water by evaporation from the oceans. Wind patterns will move that moisture over the land. It will condense into clouds. It will fall in rain. It will be carried by the rivers back to the ocean. It's a new system, but it's going to continue. God has graciously established this system of natural regularity and predictability. But what has fallen man done with this gracious gift? This uniform, fairly predictable, straightforward pattern of day and night, cold and hot, etc. What has man done with that? What did ancient man do with it? The ancient pagans said that the gods control the nature and, so, nature and so we need to placate the gods of the fertility cults by being good, by being religious, by offering sacrifices. Ancient man believed himself to be then ultimately the one who controlled nature. He was fearful of the gods, but he said, by my sacrifices I can control nature so that springtime and planting and harvest will follow each other with blessing to me. In his pride, what has modern man done? He set himself up as the God who defines and interprets nature. And so, to completely ignore the evidence of a creator God, man determines that the world evolved. And, as so, and so as to completely ignore evidence of a universal judgment in the universal flood, seeing a universal fossil graveyard, man says what? 
everything is now as it has always been. Well, that's exactly what God is saying is now the case with this world. But rather than interpreting the fossil record from the presupposition of a universal flood, the world interprets the fossil record from the presupposition of uniformitarianism. Everything just as it's always been. No creator, no judge. So in this way, modern man tells God what truth is. Truth is survival of the fittest in a uniform world which evolved over eons of time with no creator and no universal flood. The Christian, I hope that we are learning to see in the seasons and in the days of our experience on earth something very, very different. Will you follow me just as we finish here? These are precious words. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. You almost just get the sense of regularity in the moving of the poem. I hope that we're learning to see in every ripe tomato and fresh ear of sweet corn the mercy of God. I hope that we're learning to see in the ice that covers the lakes and in the frost that whitens our window panes, signs of the mercy of our Creator. As the sun sets at night and as the meteorologists tell us exactly when it's going to rise in the morning, may we never forget that they can do so because God holds tomorrow in His hand. Tomorrow is just as sure as the promise of God. It will be here. I hope we see in the colors of fall leaves and in the blinding snow of winter, in the spring flowers and in the summer fields of grain, evidence that our God delivers. He delivers on His promise of mercy every day. And He delivers His people. When Noah's experience, what Noah's experience teaches us again is that our God never fails to deliver His people. Never. He remembered Noah, and he will remember you if you're his child. Unlike frail human beings, when God makes a decision, he affects it. When he makes a promise, he fulfills it. When he assigns himself a task, he brings that task to completion. And it means, Christian, that when he plucked you out of the swirling waters of judgment, when he rescued you from the perishing world, when he chose you as his child, in that moment he willed once and forever to deliver you. And he will do it. He has decreed in Romans chapter 8 that all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He'll deliver. He's decreed in Hebrews 13 that He will never leave us or forsake us so that we have the privilege to say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. And He will deliver. Life down here is transitional. We're on a violent ark ride that is filled with fears and its heartaches and its inconveniences. But Christian, drive your stake of faith into this bedrock truth. God will deliver you. Akin to Noah, not unlike him, one day he will escort you off this turbulent ark ride 
that we call life. And he will set your feet on the shores of heaven. The ride's going to be rough at times. But it's not going to last forever. He will deliver you. The only question today is, are you on his ark? Are you with the masses who are about to perish, not knowing it, or are you on the ark? And if so, are you humbly, obediently, joyfully, like Noah, trusting him to deliver you safely? You can, you must, he will.